appreciate uh, those that bring something for us, namely the Vaughns. Really appreciate their faithfulness to that. Mostly Andy, if not only Andy, but that's fine. Uh, they're one flesh, so you can thank both of them, and it works out, So, because they're one. That's, that's one flesh. Doing what you're told is really smart. All right. So uh, a couple announcements. Um, one thing we do want to make sure you're aware of that uh, we've been talking about now for a little while is the uh, Word of Life store is actually uh, kind of being run a little bit different this school year. And so normally there would be two, kind of two main store nights, one usually before Christmas, one usually before the end of the uh, Word of Life school year. Um, right now what they're doing is they're basically going to have a store set up in the back of the room, uh, in the Word of Life room every week. Uh, the kids can begin to start getting things with their Bible books and whatnot. So in your bulletin, there was a handout here a couple weeks ago um, kind of telling you about that. If you'd like to be a part of helping with the store night, the big difference is usually we'd have, you know, everything's due by this date and there's a huge amount of stuff brought in. Um, a little bit different. We can just kind of, as we're going through the school year, you can be donating stuff to store. You can donate items and, and toy items like that, or you can donate financially. Um, the big thing is if you have questions, you can see Sandra. She can give you more information about that. Um, or you can reach out to me and we can go from there. You can also give uh, online. And so that might be the best thing to do. I know a lot of times people will go up to Sandra and uh, hand her a check after church on a Sunday morning something like that. Um, that's, that's good. But, it, you know, on Sunday morning, sometimes it's not the best thing to be handed a check that then goes in a purse or in a pocket. And then you're like, wait, why did somebody give me $10 or $20 or whatever it is? So, so sometimes the best thing to do is to do it online if you can. If you cannot do it that way, obviously a check or cash is fine. Um, but again, try to make sure if you give it to Sandra, maybe put it in something that Word of Life store, in an envelope, hand that to her, okay? Um, so that would be best. But excited for that. Um, the store is basically set up and priced as of tonight. And so quite a bit of stuff is back there right now. So we're always excited to have options for the kids to use their Bible books and just kind of have a good time with it. So also want to let you know, um, for the uh, Lyft ministry is doing their days of praise. Uh, that's going to be a potluck on Saturday, November 11th. Um, again, starts at noon, and so you can be a part of that, ladies, for sure. Um, there's uh, information at the Welcome Center if you'd like to be a part of that as well. You can sign up, or you can just talk to Kelsey or Barb Goodwin or Kat Danielson. Any number of those ladies can help you with that. Uh, one thing we do want to let you know about that we're excited about is we are offering a uh, church membership class. If somebody that you know is maybe new to the church, interested in membership, interested in know what our church believes, why we do what we do, this is a great opportunity for them to be a part of that. So uh, November 12th and 19th are the dates for the membership class. And so we're going to be doing that on, those are Sundays at 4.30. So if you're interested in that or know someone that would be, definitely want to check that out. Um, also, we have obviously Operation Christmas Child still going on. Um, Impact Student Ministries is doing their fruit basket ministry. So that's going on. Um, so a lot of that's coming due around the same time. So Operation Christmas Child, all the shoe boxes are due November 12th. So please do not forget that. If you have a shoebox, if you brought a, took a shoebox off the table or bring in your own, please have that turned in by November 12th. Um, also, uh, Fruit Basket Ministry, everything is due November 15th. 
for them. All right. So if you have any questions, you can see myself or Kelsey about the shoe boxes, Pastor Greg about the fruit baskets. Um, looked like everything was pretty well signed up for on fruit basket. There was a lot of stuff signed up already, but if you want to help financially, you can do that as well. All right. And again, the fruit basket ministry, uh, they bake the, sh- the fruit baskets up and then to deliver those to widows or widowers or shut-ins that are connected to our church. The student ministry goes out and delivers those to them and just kind of shares the love of Christ with them that way. All right. So a lot of things going on, a lot of different opportunities to get involved and plugged in. Uh, One thing we do want to really make sure you're aware of is this Sunday, uh, our Sunday morning service is going to be a little bit different. So we will be doing the uh, Voice of the Martyrs International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And so uh, it will be a normal-ish service, but the content is obviously going to be very much focused on praying for and thinking of the persecuted church. And this is global. There's so many uh, places in our world where it is not either legal or safe to be a follower of Christ, meaning openly professing your faith. Um, A lot of places you can't gather open-air meetings. You can't gather publicly. Um, And so if you do, there's a lot of risk there involved. And so we want to just take time partnering with so many other churches that are a part of this day to lift up the persecuted church, to pray for our brothers and sisters that are going through difficult situations all over the world. And so we're going to do that Sunday. There's also going to be a practical way that you can get involved, not just through prayer, although that is the most we can do. You can also get involved by supporting a need right now in the world, and we're going to tell you more about that on Sunday, and there'll be opportunities for you to do that uh, even in the notes on the app, and through the app, you can begin to get involved right away Sunday morning, so we'll have more information about that, all right? So a lot of things going on. I I hope you'll join us Sunday, Um, and again, we're going to spend some time praying for our brothers and sisters in that regard. So that's all the announcements I have for tonight. I know a lot of things going on. Any questions? about anything. Any questions about anything upcoming? Jeff? Oh, yes. Yep. This Saturday. Yep. So this Saturday is our men's prayer breakfast, uh, eight o'clock guys. And, uh, for men of all ages. And just remember too, uh, every first Saturday of the month at 8 AM. Okay. Every first Saturday of the month at 8 AM is our men's prayer breakfast all the way through till May. Okay. Then we'll take a break for the summer and come back in the fall. All right. So thank you, Jeff, for reminding me of that. So I hope you guys can make it out. It's a great time of food, fellowship. We get in God's word. We spend time in prayer. So I always want to encourage men to come out to that. It's always a good time. All right. Any other questions or, or anything about upcoming events, anything going on, activities, whatnot? No? All right. Okay. Okay. So Revelation Fitness this Saturday and next Saturday. 9 o'clock at Chatfield School in Lapeer. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can see Renee, and she can give you more information on that. Comment out to that again. Uh, 9 o'clock, is it like a, about an hour, hour and a half, something like that? 45. 45 minutes, so less than an hour. So if you're interested and you got some time, definitely talk to Renee. Let her know you'd be coming or just show up. That'd be great. Uh, all you need to do is bring workout clothes, water bottle, and a mat, right? Am I getting this right? Okay, yep, so... If you have a mat. If you don't, that's fine. They'll take care of you. So, Anything else before we open in prayer? All right. Would anyone like to open us in prayer this evening? I know I don't usually ask for someone to open, but I'm trying to get better at kind of floating that out there and seeing if anybody would like to. So if not, that's fine. I'll pray. But would anyone like to open our service in prayer this evening? Oh, yes, Sarah, absolutely. Thank you.
Amen. Thank you, ma'am. All right, so we are going to be in Revelation chapter 5. So if I can get uh, two volunteers, two volunteers, like to hand out handouts and hand out clipboards, that would be great. Two volunteers. There you go. And then we do have pens, if anybody would like a pen. Pens, who needs a pen? I always love when I ask for pens, and it's always like this, yeah. like, sheepish, like, oh, yeah, absolutely. There you go. Thank you. Anyone else? Clip, pens? Pens? No? All right. Make sure everybody gets a clipboard if you need one or a handout. The paper may have cost a, a couple dollars more for a ream. <laughs> I wasn't real pleased on the budget side of it, but that's fine. You know, you do what you got to do. I don't think it was an accident. No, it was a panic order because she thought we were going to run out. So it's all good, though. I, just, we were, I was teasing her about it earlier when I copied it. I was like, what's with this paper? <laughs> All right. Anyone else? I, I know. I, it's, it's for, that's why I noticed it as soon as I printed it. All right. Everybody good? Everybody have a handout, a clipboard if you need one, and or a pen? Good? All right. So, we are in Revelation chapter 5, and so we have been going through Revelation now for quite a while, and we've kind of been taking little breaks here or there for some different things. Um, the last two weeks, we kind of just gave you guys an overview of basically kind of the main camps or groups of different ways to view uh, end times Revelation. Um, but again, remember, we have to say this, the book of Revelation is not primarily about the end times, right? The book of Revelation is primarily a practical encouragement to the believers under persecution. That, that's kind of the real main theme of the book of Revelation. It is going to tell us a lot about various things that take place in the end times, but its primary purpose is to be a practical encouragement to believers during times of great persecution, when John wrote the revelation to the early church, they were under great persecution. This was intended to be practical and an encouragement. But we've said this many times. A lot of believers are either intimidated by the book of Revelation. They're kind of scared of the book of Revelation. They don't want to read it. Um, I know some Christians were even told when they were kind of growing up through high school, don't read the book of Revelation because... You know, there's so much in there you're not going to understand. And so I know that this book carries a lot of different ideas around it. Some people are scared of it, intimidated by it. Some people are kind of surprised at the things they read in there. Um, and so we're going to walk through chapter 5, and I want it to be what the point of the book is. Practically encouraging to believers right now today, okay? And actually chapter 4 and chapter 5 are my two favorite chapters in the book. 
Now, you might be like, well, aren't you kind of excited about how the book ends? Well, sure, of course, I love that there's a new heaven, new earth, Jesus is coming back. I love all of that. But to me, chapter 4 and chapter 5 is just so powerful for us as we live this Christian life. Because I think what we find in these two chapters will be the greatest encouragement to keep our eyes on the right place and to keep the right motivation as we live this life as followers of Christ. We need to realize that what we see around us is not all there is. This is not the big picture. We can forget there's so much more to eternity and to what's really going on uh, if we're not careful. So, Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to, this is the most notes I've had, I think, for one of our talks yet. I think I'm at like five pages of notes. Um, Some of this is just background that as I was studying it out, I just had to keep adding and adding and adding because I was like, that's really cool. Oh, that's, I didn't know that. That's amazing. So, I promise you we'll move through it slowly, but I'm going to probably do a fair amount of reading on some things. If you miss something, your notes are not quite as involved. Again, you're going to have some areas that say notes and some lines. If you want anything repeated, just ask. Or if you just want a copy of the notes, let me know. I can just give that to you as well. All right. So we'll move through it as best we can. All right. So kind of looking at the text. So Revelation chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. All right, so it says here, uh, actually, I'll ask, would somebody like to read uh, verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 5 for us, please? If not, that's fine, I can do it. Kelsey, awesome. Thank you, ma'am. So here in chapter 5, we're continuing this kind of image before the throne of God. Remember, chapter 4 was all about the throne of God, right? And if you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back, read chapter 4, and then move it into chapter 5. Because you're going to see that John's vision, remember, it started with what? The seven churches, right? These individual letters to seven unique churches dealing with their good, their bad, kind of things they needed to work on, or their in some cases, only praise. Then it transitions from the message to the local church, to the heavenly worship, to the throne of God. And chapter four took us there. It kind of opened our eyes to what's going on around the throne. And we talked about this. The throne of God is never shaken, right? Neither is the one on the throne. So when you feel shaken in your day day and age or your daily life, the day and age we're in today, you feel shaken by what you see going on overseas, what you see going on in the politics, what you see going on in whatever way. You feel shaken personally because there's a health issue, a financial issue, a relationship issue, whatever it is, you're feeling shaken in your faith. We have to pause, stop looking at what's going on in our immediate situation and direct our attention to the throne and remind ourselves, he who sits on the throne is not shaken by what we're shaken by. And our circumstances don't change who he is. And so I understand and we we empathize with people. We can connect with them and show sympathy. I'm not saying we just say, oh, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal to people what they go through. But if we keep the right focus, we'll find ourselves kind of coming up out of those situations faster and with the right perspective. Less Maybe less kind of pity parties, if, if we're using it that way. Maybe more directed towards, man, this is all directed towards his praise. So chapter 4 deals with that heavenly worship. 
There's so much there. Um, I love the descriptions given to what's going on around the throne, right? The thunderings and the lightnings and all this stuff proceeding from the throne. And we're overwhelmed by that. And then it's in that context, as John is seeing all of this, okay, which by the way, overwhelming, right? John even tries to describe it. It's like this. It's like that. It's not those things. It's not thunder. It's not lightning, but it's like that to him. He's trying to describe in the best way he knows how under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what it looks like. But when we get to heaven, it's not thunder that you're going to hear, but it's like thunder, right? So when you hear thunder, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those storms where your whole house shakes, that's kind of what I think of when John says it's like thunder. I don't think it was just like a loud booming. I think it was one of those, it just shook you down to your soul. Like you just felt the weight of that. And the lightnings and all the brightness of the glory of God being shined around the throne. And then obviously the rainbow and the elders and everything else. And so it's overwhelming. But it's in that moment that John happens to look and see in the right hand of him on the throne. So who's on the throne? God the Father. So we're going to see the Godhead talked about here. So again, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All God, okay? The Trinity is all throughout Scripture. All God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all God and yet unique in their personhood. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. Right? But they're all one as God and yet unique in their personhood and in their purpose, in their, in their mission. Right? They're all working together to fulfill this plan of the glory of God and the salvation of humanity. Right? All of it's working towards this same plan. And he notices that God the Father is holding a book. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Letter A in your notes. The first thing we have to note is no one is worthy to open the book. So the word worthy should be underlined there. No one is worthy to open the book. So John, during this heavenly vision, sees a book held by God and hears a declaration calling whoever is worthy to open the book, the angel. Now, we don't know which angel, but how does John describe the angel? Strong, a strong angel. Now, that tells me, and it tells those that study this, that there are, and we've seen this in other examples, various types of angels in heaven. All angels, all angelic beings, not human beings, by the way, no human being becomes an angel when we die. I know, you know, it's a wonderful life and the bell ringing and the guy that comes back trying to get his wings. It's a great, great movie. I grew up watching it. I got to a point in my teens. I was like, if I see this movie one more time, I'm going to dig my eyes out because I've seen it every year for 15 years. Like, it's just crazy. But that story is fictional, right? But by the way, there are people who think we become angels. Okay. There are people who think things about angels that are not biblical. They're completely fantasy or Hollywood or whatever. I'm always amazed that we'll take something that has little scripture to speaks to it. Angels, by the way, there's in comparison to the father, the son, the spirit, other things, there's, there's minimal scripture about angels. We have enough to get an idea, but man, it's one of the things that a lot of people talk about and have a lot of opinions on. And yet scripture gives us kind of a little bit, right? But here we see a glimpse of something. There's different angels that apparently do different things. So this angel, what would you think his position or his job is? Some kind of a herald. 
Okay, a librarian. So he's accounting for the book. Okay, I like that. I like the library. I've never heard that one before. That's good. The librarian angel. I just had a whole image in my head of the librarian angel with like the glasses down to here and yeah, very shh. Yeah, okay. A very, yeah, apparently a really strong librarian. So you don't keep the book longer than you should with this librarian, right? Because you're going to get messed up. So, but here we see this angel makes a declaration and what does he call for? Who's worthy to open the book. It's an open invitation. Anyone can say, okay, I'll try. But you notice what happens. No one speaks. It's just silence. No one can answer with the affirmative. And so here in this opening verse, John tells us he saw God holding a a book or it's a scroll. So we think book like actual bound book. It wouldn't be in his context, a book like that. He would think of as a scroll. Okay. Uh, In his right hand, Now, it's likely in this vision uh, a papyrus document. So it's going to be, again, John's using what he has seen, okay, to describe this. So it's most likely some kind of a document that looks to John like a rolled up papyrus document, a scroll. The verse tells us what about the writing? What did it say about what's written on it or how the writing looks on it? Does it tell us anything about that in the? Okay, you can't look upon it, but John does say something about it. Okay, there's writing on both sides. Now, John's not able to look at what it says yet. He doesn't know what it means yet, but there's writing on both sides. Now, I don't know about you, I've let that go by and never really paid attention to that. Never really thought much about that. Okay, so it's written on both sides. What's the big deal? In studying for this, writing on the back in John's Roman culture implies fullness and completeness. So a scroll in this culture at this time, if there's writing both on the front and the back, it implies completeness and fullness. Now, an example would be Revelation twenty-two eighteen. You can jot that down and turn to there at some point uh, later on this evening. Uh, Revelation twenty-two eighteen. yep. Uh, it also had the appearance of an official document. So the scroll was likely wound around a staff and fastened to the staff by seven seals. This is the idea of the seals. It's what actually seals the document to the staff, keeping it to the staff. Seals in the Roman world represented needed authority to access its contents. So when he says, who's, willing to, who's worthy to open the book? What he's asking is, who's worthy to break the seals and reveal what's written therein? That's really what the angel is saying. Who's worthy to break this seal and reveal? The seal most likely was either a line or a circle. You've seen this in movies and things, a wax seal. Um, actually, Kevin and Avi did this on an envelope with wax and they sealed it, which was kind of cool to see. Um, so some people think it's a circular seal and there's seven of those. Some people think it's just a lines, seven lines of wax sealing this document to the scroll. The wills, as I was reading through some different things on this, uh, the wills of the emperors of Rome were marked in a similar fashion. So again, this is a cultural idea to John. He's seen scrolls like this. He's heard of scrolls like this. There is a level of official nature to it. It's complete. It's full. But it's got seven seals. Now, why seven? 
Okay, perfection. Remember, we talked about this. The numbers in Revelation connect back to certain symbolism. We don't go crazy with numbers in Scripture because you can. And I've, I've read people and I've talked to people who go just a hair too far with some of this stuff. Um, I think anyway, in my opinion. But this represents perfection. So these seals, this document is complete. It's full. It's perfect. It's not lacking anything. Okay. The scroll in God's right hand contained, from what we're going to see in the rest of Revelation, official verdicts and sentences against unbelievers on Earth. And again, the number seven symbolizes God's perfect judgments. So we're going to get into the seals that are open and what those seals represent. And that symbolism, again, of representing the perfect judgment of God. The sentences or judgments would have to be carried out before Jesus could inaugurate his kingdom on earth. So this has to take place before his kingdom will be established. Okay. And that's Again, depending on where you are in one of those camps we talked about, you may not fully agree with that, but that's the idea of what Revelation seems to be suggesting. This, these seals have to be broken before the rest of this can unfold. So that's why the angel says, okay, who's worthy? Now, John's there. John was a disciple. He was an apostle, walked with Jesus, the longest living apostle, has written scripture, Right? He's a man of God. He's done great things for God. He cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Like He's a man that, that I would consider a qualified spiritual leader in the church. I mean, he is the best example in this case of a follower of Christ who's done it the longest and has done it with great commitment and devotion. And yet notice, he doesn't volunteer. He weeps. And so that's, you got to note that he's humbled by this. Even John is not assuming, oh yeah, I'll do it. He's just looking around like who's going to open the seal? Who's going to do this? Now, the response to the call, number two in your notes, the response to the call is that no one is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now there you could just think of the idea of Hades. Now I know when we say Hades, most people think of what? Hell. In scripture, Hades does not always mean hell. In some places, Hades merely means the, the afterlife. Because in Job's mind, for example, Job didn't have a definitive revelation of clearly divided heavens and hells. He knew there was with God and not with God. And, but that specific revelation wasn't fully revealed yet. So when sometimes when scripture says Hades, it's merely referring to after this. Okay? Um, in the Apostles' Creed. I think it's wrongly translated that it says that Jesus descended into hell. I don't think Jesus descended into hell as far as Satan's rule and reign in his authority of hell. I translate that. I think that better means he went into Hades, meaning what some have considered Abraham's bosom and other things of the such. And so here, when we read about that, that what is God saying? What is, what is heaven declaring? No one is worthy, not on the earth, not under the earth, not anywhere in creation is anyone able to break these seals. So in response, we talked about this a minute ago, what does John do? He weeps. Now, we have to pause here for a second. Why in the world does John weep? Because again, he has no idea what the scroll says, right? He doesn't know what it defines or what it lays out. So it kind of caught me as interesting that when they say no one's worthy, he starts to weep. And now what's interesting is as I was studying this out, 
there's a couple different ideas here. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever thought about this as you've read through Revelation or you've read through Revelation 5. Maybe you never even paused to think about that. You just thought, oh, he's just saddened by the fact that nobody's able to open it. Uh, One of the resources I was looking into talked about the idea that perhaps he thought, now again, we don't know definitively why, but this is an assumption. He thought sin on earth would never be judged and come to an end. So he's this author believes that John has an understanding that this is going to deal with some level of judgment against sin. That something in this scroll or something moving forward is going to deal with this judgment of sin. The construction of the Greek word for wept here indicates that John kept on weeping. So this isn't like little tears or a little cry. This is like uncontrollable weep, sobbing. Okay? He's just weeping continuously. John's weeping resembles actually in the Greek... Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We see that in John eleven thirty five. Now that's interesting. I don't know about you, but have you ever thought about Jesus wept as sobbing? I think most of us think of it as like he went, you know, this little man tears, you know, like where we don't really cry. We just act like there's something in our eyes. So we kind of, you know, I'm fine. You know, like you're not fine. You're crying. It's okay. Right. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I never connected these two ideas before, but in the Greek, It means Jesus wept and sobbed and was saddened by what was taking place. Now, witnesses to the event believe Jesus' tears were a sign of his love for Lazarus. And it might have been, but I don't think it was just that. Likely, it was also a sign of his sadness about sin's devastating effect on humanity. Why is it we die? We die because of sin. And that causes pain and sadness and sorrow in people's lives. And so John, maybe John, is weeping because he's realizing this sin is never going to be dealt with. It's just going to keep going. There's just going to be destruction and devastation and wickedness. And we see this all through scripture, don't we? How many of God's people cried out because the wicked seemed to prosper? What's Habakkuk's biggest complaint? God, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you stopping this? You can stop this. Why are you letting these people do this? God's people have always been heartbroken at the effect of sin in the world today. And it should be heartbroken unto compassion, not arrogance thinking we're better than. Right? When we see sin in the world, we shouldn't go, these people are so much worse than me. Or those sinners out there, they need to get their heart right. No, it should be, Lord, thank you for saving me from being exactly like the world doing the exact same things they do and think and say, and I'm just like them. Thank you for extending grace. I pray that they too will come to Christ. But also there's a level of this where it's, God, your holiness is being mocked. Your justice is being mocked. People are raising their hands to you in arrogance. And so we should get, we should weep in a sense of being bothered by the way humanity treats their creator. And I think John could have been having a lot of these emotions going through him. John could do nothing to deal with the sin in the world. But what we're going to find out, and if you've read this, obviously you know, is that Jesus not only will deal with sin and continue to deal with sin and judgment, he's already dealt with the sin issue of humanity. He's already dealt with it through the cross. Now, we haven't seen the fullness of that, but it's already done. What does Jesus say in John If you believe in me, you're not going to perish. You have everlasting life. But if you don't believe in me, you're condemned already. 
He's speaking about present condemnation and the future condemnation. He's saying, not just are you condemned now, you're condemned forever because I know your heart and it's never going to turn to me. So you're cast away into hell. And so Jesus is going to deal with this, but he already has as well. Also, one more thought on this, and then I'll open up for any questions or opinions, maybe your own thoughts on this. John may have wept because he was told in Revelation 1.1 that he must reveal the things to come. Isn't that what the Lord tells him? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So what's John expecting? To receive the revelation of what's to come to pass. Like, I got to tell people this. So maybe he's weeping because I can't do what God has called me to do. Like, I got to tell people, I can't tell them I'm not worthy to open the seal. And apparently no one is. So it's just going to go unknown. And so maybe there was a mixture of that as well. Any other thoughts on, on this opening part of that, maybe why John is heartbroken or, or why these things are kind of, why he's weeping this way. Right. 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 And a lot of the things I was reading was saying that, I guess the question they were posing was, well, why would that bother him so much that no one could open it? That's kind of what they were wanting to kind of get to the bottom of. And again, it's all assumptions. We don't, we don't know why that fact bothered him to that degree. Because um, he could have barely, like, okay, no one can open it. Vision over. Like, send me home. Why am I still here? So, but I get what you're saying. Yes, he wept because primarily no one was worthy to open the seals. Yes, 100% right. Absolutely. Renee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. We don't understand the depravity of mankind. And in this moment, he's seeing this, he's understanding this in a deeper level. Absolutely. And that's just breaking his heart. Um, I think that's true as well, because I think that's what happens when we're before the presence of God, right? What did Isaiah cry out when he was before the throne? What did Isaiah, what was Isaiah's confession to God? Okay. Yeah. But why? Woe is me? Cause I, I'm a sinful man and I dwell in a land of sinful people. And isn't it amazing when we're before the presence of God, we become instantly aware of our sin the sin of humanity, the sin of the world, but also what are we instantly made aware of? And Isaiah is a great example of this too. The opportunity for repentance and the grace to repent. Because what does God say? You're basic, I mean, I'm kind of ad-libbing here a little bit, but he gets the angel, brings the coal, touches it to his lips. Again, this is a vision. This is not, he wasn't physically there. This is a vision. But as he does this, what was that meant to do? To purify the, what he just confessed. I'm a man of unclean lips. So he purifies his lips. What is that? That's confession, repentance, grace, restoration. All in this process. And so here we see, what is John aware of? Man, the glory of God, the power of God, the holiness of God. I'm not that. We're not that. Paige. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. So just maybe the sheer magnitude, yeah, of what he's seeing and what he's experiencing would cause weeping. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point. So he knows to some degree this has to happen first or it's not ever going to happen. Maybe that's it. So is John 14, one through six ever going to be fulfilled? It's a great point. Yeah. I think that's why Thomas was so mad. When he came back and he said, I'm not going to believe until I touch his, the holes in his hands. He wasn't, I don't believe he was doubting. I think he was angry because he said, if Christ dies, I want to die with Christ. He couldn't do that. And I think he was so heartbroken over losing Christ. That just came out as, uh, nope, I don't want to hear it. He's angry. I don't want to hear it. Melissa. Okay. Okay. So why, the, why not questioning where the Lord is, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's, I, I, that is an interesting point. Why does he not question that or at least assume that Jesus can do that? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's a really good point. Yeah. Maybe he's thinking, well, the angel's asking. I mean, maybe Jesus said, hey, you've got to find somebody worthy. I, I don't know, you know. But we're going to see, obviously. Also note Jesus' location. And we haven't read it yet. But where does Stephen say... And where does Hebrew say, rather, where Jesus is? Sitting on the right hand of the throne of the Father. Here we're going to say it says he's in the midst, meaning between the throne and John. Now, we know God the Father never seems to advocate his throne. He never gets up on the throne. But we know Jesus left his throne. He did it to come to earth. He's done it in, other, in the Old Testament. We believe that he had these... Um, uh, pre-incarnate manifestations, right? Where he appeared in a different form as a man. Uh, he did this, we believe, in the Exodus. We believe he did this in other places in the Old Testament. So it's interesting to note that. So maybe because Jesus wasn't seated on the right hand of the throne of the Father, maybe John hadn't seen him yet, wasn't aware of him yet in that regard. But it's interesting to think about, for sure. Any other thoughts before we move on? Because we'll move through the next little section, and then we'll probably have to pause. Maybe. Um, all right. So, we'll read verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8. Can I get another volunteer that would like to read that for us? Revelation 5, 5 through 8. Renee, awesome. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious, so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one, like a slaughtered lamb, standing between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So this is just some amazing imagery, right? Some amazing things that John is seeing. Letter B in your notes, the Lamb of God appears. Okay, the Lamb of God appears. 
So number one, John sees the Lamb of God. It is interesting that, as, as Melissa pointed out, why wasn't he looking for him, calling for him? Seemingly, for whatever reason, he now is aware of Jesus being there. Uh, Jesus Christ in the midst of the throne. Okay, So again, as I was saying, in the midst of the throne. Some different commentaries, I was reading different authors. Um, some put a little bit more into that than others. Some don't even acknowledge it at all. Um, but it is interesting that he's not on the throne, but he seems to be in the midst of the throne kind of before the throne, okay? Um, John one twenty nine. you can jot that down. Again, as another example, John one twenty nine. Uh, here we know that John the Baptist says that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we see references to, that's just another example of Jesus being called the Lamb of God as he is here. Um, and when you think about this word lamb, uh, I don't know what comes to your mind, um, but the form of the word lamb in the original Greek uh, implies smallness, smallness, not small in stature, but smallness, meaning humble, meek. Um, it does not imply cuteness. As I was reading one commentary, I think it was in the Moody commentary, they actually pointed that out. So many people think of a lamb as this cute little lamb thing, you know, whatever, but it's not that because in the Greek mind, there would be no understanding like that. This is smallness, but not cuteness. Uh, the desired response when you see this lamb is a state of awe. Like we should be in awe of this moment. So let's look again at how he's described. It says, and one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now, we'll talk about the horns and the eyes in a second. Again, don't let that wordage throw you. I know that's where people get really tripped up. But we'll kind of explain what we believe some of that symbolism represents. But here you understand that. So we've got some descriptions here. What are the descriptions of Jesus here? What are some of the ways that he's described? The lamb, right, that has been slain. What else? The lion of Judah and the root of David. These are all very important titles given to the Messiah. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah, what comes to mind when you think of the lion of Judah? Strength. Courage. How about fierceness, like a ferocious, right? So that's one picture we get in our minds, this ferocious lion. Then it talks about the root of David. So what are we referring to there? Well, the, from the tribe of Judah and the root of David implies royalty, his kingly line. Okay, he's in a line of kings. He has the right to rule and reign as the king. Okay, so he's in that authoritative line. So the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse or David, Right? And that's revealed even in the Old Testament. He is called the root of Jesse that will remain. Right, When Isaiah says the remnant will remain, that's the root. Right, And then we've got this lamb as it had been slain. Now, this actually carries with it Old Testament imagery. It's not just the lamb of God. It's as it had been slain. So this is why we would believe, and maybe you've heard this, that Jesus carries the scars from the crucifixion still. Because again, he's saying, I see this lamb in the state of which it was slain. So that's, that's meant to invoke in us that it's been sacrificed. Again, going back to an Old Testament understanding. So again, 
what are we supposed to draw away from this royal, ferocious, meek lamb of God? Well, it's meant to cause awe because he's both the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain. Now, why was he slain? For the sins of the world. Now, remember, this isn't a literal lamb. He's not literally in the form of a lamb. Jesus does not take the form of an animal. Okay? But when you start reading this imagery, I've heard people say they actually picture Jesus as a lamb with seven literal horns, seven literal eyes. It's just, it's not what John is communicating. John wouldn't recognize Jesus like that. But John recognizes him as, no, no, that's the lamb of God. I know him. I know Christ. So again, it's just word pictures to make us think of these other Old Testament and New Testament connections. So again, we're in awe. He's both fierce and ferocious and meek and mild. This is the Son of God. This is the, the Jesus that we know. Now, when he came the first time, how did he come? Meek and mild as a lamb. How's he returning the second time? As the ferocious lion of Judah. One was a mission of compassion, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The second coming of Christ is for what purpose? Judgment. Now, there will be those that will be saved during, I believe, the time of tribulation and all of that. I believe that's why Jesus is being preached still. I believe that. I believe people can be saved during the tribulation. However, in this moment, when he comes back, he's coming back to bring judgment. Not delayed judgment, but the wrath of God. And I know that's so hard for people today. So many people today, especially in the progressive movement, and they want to picture Jesus a very certain way. We love Jesus. Humanity really loves Jesus as a meek and mild lamb who's cool with whatever you do, and he'll forgive you for anything, and it's all good. It's all love. Jesus is loving, but Jesus is also the lion of Judah. And if you want a reminder, go back and read how John describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. That's not a lamb he's describing with eyes like fire and all of this. And so again, um, this is meant to imply and invoke this idea of uh, an awe among the people. Uh, also, with the seven horns and the seven eyes, what in the world is that talking about? Some of you may have studied this before. Does anyone know what the, the horns represent? What that's a picture of? It communicates something. Power, authority. Authority is really the more the idea. So seven horns. So perfect authority. Why does he have perfect authority? Because he's the lion of Judah. He's the root of David. He has the authority because it was given to him. Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he holds the authority. And then it says the seven eyes, right? And it goes on to say the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now we got to go back. We're not going to turn there, but we would go back to Revelation 1. It talks about the seven spirits, right? Again, sounds confusing. What are those seven spirits? Who is that seven spirits? No, those are the seven, that's the stars represented there. Seven spirits, that's just the Holy Spirit, right? And what does the seven represent? Perfect spirit. Some people will say that the seven represents also the ministries of the spirit. But however you want to look at it, this is the Holy Spirit being spoken of here. So this is the idea. The seven spirits are sent out. See, that's the idea there. It's sent out into the world. What did Jesus say? I'm going to go and I'm going to send who? The comforter, the Holy Spirit. So the Father sends the Spirit, but so does the Son. And the Spirit goes where? Into all the world. John chapter 16, I believe, right? To convict the world of what? Sin and righteousness. 
This is the Spirit's ministry. So again, what's being communicated here? You have the Lamb of God who has all the authority sending forth the Spirit of God, right? Out into all the world to see what is taking place. So again, you see the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Again, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. He was bold. Right. Yes. So I think, and you're touching on this, I think the problem is that we, we have the wrong definition of meekness. So a lot of people think meekness is, is timid. That's not the definition of meekness. The best definition of meekness that I've ever heard, and I don't even remember where I've read this. Maybe it was in Strong's. He said it this way, or whoever it was said it this way. Meekness is defined as great power under greater restraint. So the idea is I could do this thing. I could do this act. I'm able to do this act, but I'm restrained from doing it under a greater constraint. So Jesus could have called down angels and they could have taken him off the cross. Jesus could have said one word and Pilate stopped breathing. Jesus could have done any of that. But he chose to submit himself under the will of the Father, which is the meekness. Great power under greater restraint. The idea that I've heard people use is that of like a bit in a horse's mouth. Right? Great power but under a greater control, directing and guiding that power for a purpose, right? For a reason. And so here again, you're absolutely right. We think meekness, we think weak, timid, shy, politically correct, whatever you want to say. No, he was bold and he said what he needed to say, but he was meek in the sense that he went along with the will of God when he, as Philippians says, he was equal to God, but made of himself no reputation, but took on himself the form of a servant, right? And went to the cross. And so again, you're absolutely right. We have to make sure we have the right understanding of those, those terms. When he comes the second time, he will come in the revelation of who he really is. There is no constraint now and restraint. He is going to display. And I think we get a little picture of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think that's why the disciples reacted, reacted the way they did. It was just a small glimpse. I don't even know if I would say it's a tenth of or give a percentage to it. A small glimpse of the glory of God on display. And what was the initial response? They fell on their face. And then Peter, being Peter, recommends idolatry. Let's make temples to you and to Moses and Elijah. No, don't recommend idolatry to the Son of God. Don't do that, right? Now, he really, I don't think that's really what he was implying, but that's what it comes out as. So here we see this idea of this great, powerful Jesus who's going to come in, come in authority, right? Um, Again, these seven spirits speak to the Holy Spirit being sent into the world. Uh, Jesus does not have seven eyes or seven horns, literally. Uh, Again, horns in scripture represent power or authority. The eyes of the Spirit represent that the Spirit of God sees all that transpires on earth. Why would that be important? Why do we have to recognize that the Spirit of God, as God, the Godhead, sees all that transpires on earth? Why does that matter to what's going to be talked about in the book of Revelation? It's really kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, 
a vital point. It's kind of obvious, I guess, in some ways. Right. So he has the authority and the right to make judgments because he sees everything. So there's no hidden thing before him. Therefore, I can't judge you fully in any matter because I don't know your heart. I don't see you 24-7. I don't know what you think. The Spirit of God does. And so God can judge the inner man. I can only judge external. But he sees everything. Right? Psalms is full of examples of this. Where I put my bed here, there, doesn't matter, high, low, anywhere, you see everything. So again, this is reaffirming the authority he has to judge. Last point, and then we'll wrap up for the night. Oh, actually, you know what? I hate to do this to you guys. I know it's number two of the point. We're going to pause there because there's a lot of content. I don't want to rush through. So, yes, Christ is worthy, but um, you can jot this down. We're going to dive into a little bit more of that idea of prevailed. In the scripture, in verse 5, it says he prevailed, and I'm going to give you guys just a little bit of that now. Um, So you can write next to number 2 or in the notes or somewhere, prevailed. That means conquered, absolutely. So it means to conquer, absolutely. So that means definitive victory. And man, tie that to the gospel. What does Romans say? We are more than conquerors in Christ. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? That means I don't have to even show up for the battle. More than conquerors doesn't mean I showed up and I won. It means I stayed home. The battle was over there. I didn't even show up and I won because I don't fight the battle. Christ does that, has done that. So I merely am just a victor because I'm in Christ. I'm more than a conqueror. I didn't go out and win and fight the battle. I just say, nope, in Christ, I've already won. And how is that? Because he's overcome the world. And what does John say in Revelation? He's done it absolute, complete, full. Again, remember the, the scroll with the writing on the back and the front? It's full. It's complete. It's, there's no need for anything else, right? So we're going to pause here. We're going to break for prayer. I want to make sure that we definitely give time for that. Um, So we're going to close our time together here in prayer, and then we'll have the ladies come up. We'll head down the hallway there, guys. Just a reminder, uh, everyone is invited to pray. Uh, we, I absolutely love coming together with all the men, and I know the ladies enjoy coming together up front here um, and just spending time in prayer together. It's a big reason why we do it on Wednesday nights, um, because I believe there's, there's power in prayer. Um, I, I believe when the church is praying together consistently, um, I believe God begins to do things in that church. Uh, prayer, I really believe, prayer is the engine that drives the church. Do you remember what Jesus said when he flipped the tables and drove out the, the merchants that were robbing people? He said, you've turned my house into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's not a house, now preaching's fine, music's fine. It's not a house of preaching primarily. It's not a house of worship primarily. It's a house of prayer primarily from Jesus' understanding. So how many times do we as a church neglect that as the body, when we could be engaging in that. So I just want to invite you guys to be involved in the prayer, not just physically, but also obviously engaging our hearts and our minds in that. All right? So let's pray. Then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. And we do thank you for your love and grace. And thank you for this amazing chapter in your word that gives us an uh, an insight into the worship that's going on, that will go on. And Lord, that we get to be a part of it as your church. And so I I pray, Father, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth starting right now. We don't have to wait 
to get into your throne room physically to begin worshiping the one who sits on the throne. Uh, We can begin that now. And we can begin to worship you and praise you. And we're going to talk, Lord, next week about the type of worship that they gave to you and, and how they edified you. And so I pray, Lord, that we would begin to do that in our own lives, not just individually, but also as the body of Christ. And again, all of this is for you, Lord. So I pray that you've been glorified in what we've talked about tonight. I pray that you've been edified because your name is above every other name. And Lord, it's the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so, Father, I pray that everyone here knows you, has received you as their Lord and personal Savior. If they haven't done so, I pray that they would confess their sins, repent and turn from their sins, and trust in Christ for everlasting life. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your word, for the lamp that it is unto our feet, the light unto our path. Go with us, Lord, as we spend some time in prayer this evening. And again, may you be glorified in all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick note, if you have prayer guides, they're from last week. Those are the newest ones. If you don't have one, feel free to grab one on your way out tonight. They're at the Welcome Center, a couple extras that we have. But we'll have all the men. We're going to head down the hallway there. Uh, We're probably just going to go right to the library because I'm guessing the classroom's probably going to be in use still maybe. But if not, we'll use the classroom. If they're still in there, we'll go to the library. Ladies, come on up front. And if you don't really... uh, don't want to be a part of the prayer time, that's totally fine. You can help yourself to the more refreshments in the lobby, and we'll finish up about 8.15.